Heavenly Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for all these who you have brought to this service. No accidents, no coincidences, no happenstances. You have willed that every person be in this room tonight to hear from you in your word. That's what we desire. We don't want to hear a mere uh, intellectual uh, dissertation. We don't want to hear mere argument. We want to hear from you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We want to be moved and transformed. Help us in these moments. I pray that you would speak to each person. I pray that they would hear specifically, that you would put your finger, O Holy Spirit, on their hearts and show them what they need to hear tonight. Would you open our eyes? Would you open our ears? Would you move on us in these moments? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I want you to remember, before we jump in, Matthew 5.20 is crucial to us jumping in to Matthew 5.21 to 26. What happened in Matthew 5.20? Well, Jesus is saying, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. I did not come to set myself up against Moses or the prophets or the Psalms or the wisdom literature. No, I came to fulfill. And then he gives this alarming statement in verse 20. I'll read it. Matthew 5, 20. For I tell you, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, to Jesus' original hearers, that would have been shocking. Their hearts would have dropped into their stomach, like when you get bad news. Because in that day, there were no more rigorous, outwardly righteous and religious people than the scribes and the Pharisees. In fact, you know from your gospel-centered community this week that The Pharisees were a reform movement in Judaism of this day. They were not only studiers of the law, but they were strict adherents to this law. However, Jesus gives us insight into their hearts. And that was last week's message. And you remember, hypocrites. Hypocrites, you're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look beautiful, but inward, inside, you're full of dead man's bones, greed and hypocrisy. And so what Jesus is saying by exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, he says God is looking for an inward righteousness, not an outward compliance with a list. Inward righteousness. And then from there he begins to give illustrations of what inward righteousness looks like versus outward righteousness. And so Jesus is going to say, here's what God means by you shall not murder, commandment number six. So let's, let's jump in. You have heard it said, Matthew 5, 21, that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, Jesus in this text is not saying that the sixth commandment is not relevant. And he's also not saying that police do not have the authority 
to exercise their authority. He's not saying that the military does not have authority to exercise their authority. He is not saying that the courts, judges, do not have the authority to exercise their authority to put people to death. He's not saying that. How do you know that? Well, because Romans 13, 1-7 clearly lays that out. Let me read it for you. The reason I'm bringing this up is because most people get very confused at this verse 21. He's talking about individual acts of homicide. You killing someone else. He's not talking about police. He's not talking about military. He's not talking about the courts and the justice system. Let's read Romans 13, 1-7 together. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. That's a massive statement. So I don't care how corrupt the government is that you find yourself under, they're in there by God's appointment. And as crazy as this sounds, in the Old Testament, Jesus could say, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. Nebuchadnezzar was the one who set up the golden image, scholars think, of himself and demanded worship of an image of himself and then said, if you do not worship this image, you will be thrown into the blazing oven. And then God says, my servant. Really? Yeah, really. God rules the rulers. God governs the governors. God moves through the authority structures that he puts up as corrupt as they may be. And listen, he will judge their corruption. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, as a result of that truth, what do we do? Whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. So when we resist authority, as corrupt as it may be, we resist God. Now, there are qualifications, and we're not preaching on Romans 13. Maybe we'll do that in the next series. I think we will. But just know there are qualifications. There are times when we must disobey the governing authorities, specifically when they go against what God has told us we should do or should not do. Okay, we'll get more detailed on that when we get there next series after the Sermon on the Mount. Four, verse three, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. The sword in that day would be guns and authorities like lethal injection and the like in our day. The sword, the the power to execute capital punishment. The sword. He does not use the sword or carry the sword in vain. He does not bear the sword in vain. Why? For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoers. What this means is, as crazy as this this sounds with our news media blowing up everything that happens, God moves through unrighteous authorities. And it's his common grace to keep some societal order, even if it's a corrupt government. Because listen, no government, every person does what's right in their own eyes, anarchy. You can't even go to the store to buy bread in that system. At least in our society, yes, corrupt. You can go to the store and get milk and eggs, and you can go and buy diapers at Walmart. Why? Because if someone jacks a, a, 
a carton of diapers, well, there's security in place to throw that person down and perhaps even put them in prison. And you're looking at a guy who was a former thief. I've got caught twice stealing from stores. Right? A, a former thief. And so I got what I deserved. I had to do classes. I had to pay fines. I, was, I had a record. Um, I was wrong. They weren't wrong for executing judgment on me. I was wrong for stealing. And I should have got caught, and I'm glad I did. But at the time, I wanted to hurt them because I felt I was in the right to take, as warped as my sense of justice was. Okay, let's continue. Verse 5, Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And so, we don't just do this to avoid wrath from the authorities. We do this for our conscience sake. And for me, this is bigger. This is bigger. Like, you can go to bed at night thinking, I did God's will, and not have, I hope, an upset conscience, a little voice that says, you're in the wrong, you're in the wrong, and you have to suppress that and push it down and say, I'm not wrong, and you have to argue internally. Who knows what I'm talking about? And you fight with yourself, and you know you're wrong, and God has given you the gift of a conscience, Romans 2, to convict you. You have a right and wrong detector inside of you. Your conscience. And for the Christian, the conscience is being recreated and remade into a righteous conscience. It's another sermon altogether. And then you love verse 5 and 6. I'm sorry, verse 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Awesome. God's will is for you to pay your taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. Now, now keep in mind, he's not talking about Donald Trump. He's talking about the corrupt Roman system with Nero in power, who would tie people up, put animal clothing on, and viciously attack them for his own pleasure. A sick, twisted, demon-filled man. He's a minister of God, is what Paul just said. This is the letter to the Romans, by the way. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Jesus is not here talking about the government, the police, or the courts. Okay, He's talking about individuals. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. He's talking about individuals. It's a different category than the authorities that God has ordained for order, common grace. Okay, with that being said, let's move on. Again, there, there could be a million qualifiers for what I just read, so I'm sorry that I couldn't pick it apart and spend an hour on it. I just wanted to clear up some of the confusion that comes along with that verse 21. And come talk to me afterward. I'm sure that you'll want to know about some of the qualifications. Okay, so here's what's happening. Jesus is saying this. You have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And then he says, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you. Now Jesus seems to be taking what Moses wrote in Exodus 20, commandment number six, and then he's going to kind of contradict it maybe? No, absolutely not. 
When he says, you have heard it was said, he's not quoting scripture. Why? Because in Matthew 4, just previous to Matthew 5, he was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And when Satan would tempt him, what would he say? It is written. Three times, at least, that we know of. And so when Jesus is going to quote God or God through Moses, he's going to say it is written or God says. And so we know that he is not talking about God or Moses or the scriptures. He's rather quoting what is common in his day, what the scribes, what the rabbis, what the Pharisees would have said. And here's what they would say. They would say, you shall not murder. And adding to it, whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you, so there's the outwardness. Remember I said there's an outward verse inward that Jesus is now giving illustrations of. So they would say, as long as you don't murder, you're good. You fulfilled the law. And remember, Jesus in last week's sermon said, anyone who relaxes one of these commandments, this is the relaxing that he's talking about. As long as you don't physically murder anyone, you're good. Right? Commandment number six of the ten. Well, Jesus gets to the heart of the commandment, the inwardness of the commandment that God actually intended when he wrote it. What is it? But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So it's not just that if you murder someone, you're going to be judged. It's that if you're angry with someone, you're going to be judged. Liable to judgment. So, so let's, let's talk about that for a minute. We can become so angry inside. And you know what happens when anger is allowed to live inside of you for a long time? It produces bitterness. So just like when grape juice in the right context can ferment and become wine, when anger is allowed to ferment inside of you and you replay it and you rehash it and you click that play button again and again and again and again, it's fermenting, and it's becoming bitterness. And inside of that anger, listen to me, is where murder comes from. Anger. We're talking about unjust murder. We're not talking about self-defense. Unjust murder. The root is angry, anger. And so listen, if you're really angry at someone, you have the potential to kill that person. I don't care who they are. That's what Jesus is saying. Because that's the very small plant that when it grows up and produces fruit, murder is the fruit. And so, rightfully so, Jesus doesn't just go with the outward action. He goes with the inward where the root is. He doesn't go for the fruit. He goes for the root. Anger. Unjust anger. Now, there's righteous anger. Jesus got angry in the Bible, didn't he? Right, looking at their unbelief, you remember the, the man in the temple with the withered hand, and he sees him in the back and he calls him up, not the temple, the synagogue, he calls him up and he, and he presents the man before all and he says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? And he looks at the rabbis, he looks at the, the religious of his day and no answer. And then it says, in anger, the wrath of God, Jesus, 
He heals the man. Why? Because they knew that it was right and good and proper to heal a man even on the Sabbath. But that went against their man-made laws that were not biblical. The traditions of the elders. The fence around the fence, around the fence. When the inside fence was all that was required. And so Jesus gets angry, and righteously so, never sinfully. So we're talking about sinful anger here. There are, you should be mad at injustice, guys. And if you're not, that's a sin. Right? When you see some injustice happen, especially in front of you, you should be angry. And if you're not, there's a problem. We went through a book called Redemption by Mike Wilkerson with some of you in here. And it was painful for me to go through it because it was story after story of rape and abuse and abuse, physical, emotional, verbal. And, and I found myself getting angry as I read it. I, I've never met these people. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about there's something that you wanted that you didn't get. There's something that you had expected that didn't come to you. There's, in your small G God view of the world, a bigger G God came into your path. And you're angry because it didn't go the way you wanted it to go. This is selfish anger that Jesus is talking about. It's not righteous anger. It's not just anger. This is selfish anger. And the root of murder is this kind of anger that Jesus is speaking of. He then goes further. Now We could talk a lot about that, but listen, if you really want to get deep in anger, you can go on the website. We've done at least three messages on anger specifically, so I can't rehash all that because we have to get through this. Okay, so if you're like, I want to know more about go to the website and find the messages in James on anger, the messages in the um, Destroy the Works of the Devil series. Okay, so he then goes further. It, connected to anger is this, second part of verse 22. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You seriously? Now, we have to talk about this. And so, there's more than one way to kill somebody, isn't there? You can do it with a knife, you can do it with a gun, you can poison them. But Jesus is saying you can do it with words, too. You can slay people with words, and God sees that as murder. So are you the vicious thrower of words like knives? Do you use words that cut deep enough to kill? Do you? And you need to know that if, if, if there's outbursts of anger that come out of you, and you're not even in control of it, that's a mark of the flesh, Galatians 5. Outbursts of anger. And usually in outbursts of unrighteous anger, something gets destroyed, doesn't it? Maybe it's a wall. Maybe it's something you bought. Maybe it's an appliance. Maybe it's a phone. But maybe it's a person. 
the most valuable thing that gets broken. And sometimes they don't get broken physically. Sometimes there's not even physical abuse, but there's verbal abuse. And the words cut so deep that, listen, they never can dislodge. Now, I'm not going to take a show of hands, but I can almost guarantee that there are things that have been said to you from when you were a little kid that still haunt you today. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It still lives in your experience, doesn't it? Because words have power. They have weight. They're not just air. They have weight. Jesus told us this in Matthew 15, 17 to 20. Do you not see? He's responding in this context to the religious leaders getting angry at him because he's not following the traditions of the elders. He's not washing properly his hands and he's not washing the utensils that you would eat with, proper cleansing rituals of the day. Not prescribed in scripture, prescribed by the elders and the religious leaders. And so he violates them on purpose, just like he violates their made-up Sabbath rules. He does it on purpose to show them their hypocrisy. And so this is the problem. They're angry at him for not washing, not keeping the tradition of the elders. And in response, explaining himself, he says, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? I don't have to exposit that, do I? We do that every day. But what comes out of the mouth, words, sometimes soft, Sometimes very loudly. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. See, see, the heart in the Bible is the core of your being. It's the you. It's your essence. It's, it's your motivational structure. You can't be separated from your heart. It controls all of you. And so Jesus says, the words that you speak are not just words. They're a reflection of you. They're not disconnected from you. So what you verbalize is actually in you. We like to compartmentalize so we feel better about ourselves. But what you say is a part of you, and it's coming from you. It's rooted deep in you, and it has to come out. When you talk to people, you are telling on yourself who you really are. Words are powerful. And Jesus says they're not just out of nowhere. They come from your core. Let's go further. And this defiles a person. And see, so it's not just the words themselves. It's the heart that is defiled that then verbalizes. And so we see who you really are by what you say. You can't say, oh, I was just saying that. I didn't mean that. No, you said it. And it's in you. So, so th- this is like self-examination that's healthy. I know it sounds unhealthy and condemning, but listen, it's healthy for you to see this because sometimes we don't want to look in the mirror. We don't want to see who we really are, and so we just don't look at the mirror. We're like, it's not me. And, and what Jesus is doing right now, and what I'm hoping the Holy Spirit's moving on you right now, is he's saying, look at yourself. Like, do you think you're better than you actually are? 
For out of the heart, verse 19, comes this. So what comes out of the thought, out of the heart? Well, listen and see if you find yourself in this list. Evil thoughts. Do you ever have evil thoughts? Now, in my opinion, it's better to keep them inside than verbalize them. But just because you don't verbalize them doesn't mean they're still in there and they're still a part of you. Okay, so there's sometimes that we could just keep the mouth shut. And sometimes I actually pray that. I'm like, God, help me not to say anything. I really, that's a real thing. Because I know if I say it, it's going to make it worse. But it's still not good that it's in there and I want to say it. That's bad. It's bad that I have to pray, God, please help me not to say anything right now. Because inside, I want to say a whole lot and it's going to hurt and it's going to cut. And I'm going to have to ask for forgiveness to the person and to God. But at the first level, you kind of just have to talk to God. Evil thoughts. What else? Murder. So murder comes out of the heart. There it is. And what's the root of murder? It's anger. So listen, you might say, I'm not a murderer. But if you're an angry person, we might be able to say to you, not yet. And some of you would never think, never, never, maybe. Maybe. This is the Bible. This is not my opinion. I'm not some psychologist. This is the God who made the universe, the judge of all the earth, who will do right. When he sees into human experience, he says anger is the root of murder. And if you're an angry person, you're definitely capable of it. And God sees it as that because it's the root of it. It just hasn't had a chance to grow yet. That's scary, isn't it? And so we look at murderers, like legit, death row, in prison for life murderers, and we say, those are the bad people. And then we look at us and we compare ourselves to them and say, we're good people. Yet Jesus says, if you're angry, unjustly, sinfully, you're just as bad as them. You're on your way to where they are, is what he's saying. Adultery. That's next week. <laughs> Sexual immorality. That's next week too. Theft. False witness. That's lying. Slander. That's defaming someone. These are what defile a person. Now listen to this. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. It's not about the outward. It's not about outward cleanliness or how you look or how people perceive you. It's who you are on the inside. That's the real deal. And if we'll look in the mirror and be honest with ourselves, we don't have to pretend that we're awesome. Because we're not. Anyone not awesome in here? I'm the, I'm the only not awesome. Okay, thank you. There's a half hands, a finger, one finger. Just admit it, man. You're not awesome. Out of the heart comes the words. And so will you take a look at yourself? Will you take a look at your outbursts of anger and see what God sees? Will you? Now, what about this word fool? Some of your translations say raka, and that's Aramaic. The translators translated it, you fool. But what does it mean? Well, MacArthur helps us. He says, you fool literally means empty-headed. Empty-headed. You nothing. Like, what does that mean? You're nothing to me. You have no weight to me. You're a fool intellectually, 
emotionally, physically. You just, you don't exist to me. Who are you compared to me? You fool. So for you to be able to look down that way at somebody else, that means you have yourself in your head really high up, yet you don't think you do. Like, do you look down at people in other economic classes, in other intellectual classes, in other uh, ethnic classes, in other religious classes? Like, do we have grounds to look down at, at Hindus? Are we awesome and they're sinners? Or are we sinners just like them in need of a savior? See, how do you look at others is the question here. Do you put yourself up and look at them and put them down in your head? You might not verbalize this to anyone, but it's sure going on when you walk downtown, isn't it? When you're at line, in line at McDonald's. Or when the drive through you know, 16-year-old kid puts ketchup on your burger when you said no ketchup, you fool. And you whip the burger back in at her making, what, five bucks an hour or something. But you're awesome, aren't you? I would have put ketchup if they said no ketchup. I wouldn't have put ketchup if they said no ketchup. Right? So do you do that? Like they put cream in my coffee. I said no cream, fool. You're nothing to me. Can't get my coffee right? I'm serious. These are little ways that we do this. You interrupted my plans, you fool. And on and on, we could give illustrations. Jesus, here's MacArthur again. Jesus suggested here that the verbal abuse stems from the same sinful motives, anger and hatred, that ultimately lead to murder. Hmm. Verbal abuse stems from the same sinful motives, anger and hatred, that ultimately lead to murder. The internal attitude is what the law actually prohibits. And therefore, an abusive insult carries the same kind of moral guilt as an act of murder. Wow. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. So MacArthur just said, a verbal insult carries the same moral guilt as an act of murder. Have you ever thought about that before? I love the Sermon on the Mount. This is awesome. We're all here, aren't we? We all find ourselves on the floor tonight. And I'm there too, even though I'm up here on the stage. I'm with you. We're together in this. What about the hell of fire? We don't like to talk about hell, but unless we're like... What kind of past was that? Or we're upset at someone. What the hell were you thinking? Right? And we throw around the word, but this word in Greek is the garbage dump of Jerusalem. It's Gehenna. Gehenna is the transliteration of the Hebrew of the hidden, I'm sorry, the Hinnom Valley. The Himen Valley in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles, was where human sacrifices were offered in worship to false gods, demons. And so it became fitting only to burn garbage in. It was the city dump that they just continued to burn trash. 
And so, a ravine just southwest of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, a place of trash fires and perpetually burning rubbish. Hence, the figurative extension of a place of eternal punishment. And so Jesus is saying here, if you're walking around with that kind of attitude, then you're liable to that. Gehenna. The city dump where the fire never burns. And you've heard where the worm never dies. That's because there's always food at Gehenna for the worms. There's always dead carcasses and things to eat. Now, we're not doing a message on hell, uh, but maybe someday we will. And almost all scholars think that hell is pictured here. It's a metaphor. It's a, it's a way to show a place that you don't want to go. But not literally a place of fire. Some theologians would say maybe worse than fire. But Jesus is warning us here lovingly. He's not, he's not condemning us here. He's lovingly warning. This is the danger. Don't go there. Please, he's saying, be careful. You're liable of the fire of hell or the hell of fire if you're that kind of angry person or verbally abusive person. You're in danger, he's saying. And then he gives some illustrations of what would our response be now to this? Like, what, what would this practically look like? And he gives us two, two helpful ones. He says, so verse 23, if you are offering your gift at the altar, the altar was the Old Testament place where you brought sacrifices to God for various reasons, for sin mostly, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now what's he saying here? He's saying that the two things that need to happen here is you need to pursue people you've wronged, and you need to pursue reconciliation. Now you who know the gospel know that this is exactly what God has done to us. We have offended him greatly. And he has come to us as we were running from him, grabbed us, and sought reconciliation. This is the gospel. And so if you've been acted upon by God pursuing you, we know from Ephesians 1, before the world began, and he came after you and he got you, and he reconciled you to himself. You should be about that with others. So, so here's the question that Jesus is asking here. Are there people that you are estranged from? And I know that the answer is yes for every one of us. And what Jesus is saying with this illustration is, God is not so much interested that you bring him sacrifices. It, in the Old Testament, it was sacrifices but in the New Testament, what could, what could we call it? What, what could new covenant sacrifices be? Well, Romans 12 tells us, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So serving him, living for him, spiritual disciplines, prayer, 
memorizing scripture, studying, listening to biblical podcasts, reading good books. He's saying, listen, if you're about to go there and yet you're not willing to go after the people you're estranged from, there's a problem. Do you see that? So we think we're okay because we're doing all this spiritual stuff, yet God is saying, wait a minute, you're not right with A, B, C, D, E, F, G. You need to stop praying. What? And go reconcile. Does that sound harsh? Because he said, leave your gift at the altar and go reconcile. Go find them and reconcile. Then, so so let me read it again. Leave your gift before the altar. Don't give it as a sacrifice. Go. Take action. Pursue as you've been pursued. And first, before you sacrifice, before you do your spiritual disciplines or you offer your body as a living sacrifice, you be reconciled to your brother or sister. That's what Jesus said. I'm just reading. (laughs) Then, after, come and offer your gift. Then get back to your prayer. Then get back to your Bible study. Then get back to your small groups. Then get back to your worship services. And on and on we could go. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. See, what we don't take into account here often is when we're wronged, there's anger inside of us. There's bitterness as a result of that wrong being allowed to fester. And now we're so angry at that person. How dare you even tell me I should go and seek reconciliation? And it makes you angry that I've even said it, doesn't it? Yet Jesus is saying, look, this is gospel, guys. So listen to me, please. Jesus is God in the flesh. He came after you if you're a Christian tonight. He pursued you so that you could be reconciled to him, so that you could be reconciled to his father, so that you could be uh, reconciled to his spirit. What does reconcile even mean? It means to make peace. Make peace. So who do you need to make peace with tonight? That's the question. You got them in your mind? Maybe there's a whole list. Now, here's a qualification. Okay, so relax. Because you're like, they don't want reconciliation. I've tried. Well, Paul helps us in Romans 12, 8. He says, if possible, if possible, As far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. So what does that mean? That means, or live at peace with everyone. In fact, J.B. Phillips was a helpful translator or paraphraser. He said, as far as your responsibility goes. So what am I responsible for in this? Live at peace with everyone. So what does that mean? That means if you've gone and you've sought reconciliation, and they say, No. Or they verbally give you the finger or physically. You've done all you can do. Now, you might pray for them, and I would say do. Pray for God to break their hearts so that they would want reconciliation. But listen, as far as it depends on you, as much as you're responsible, here's what it is. You have to go after them and seek peace. But if they won't respond, you're not responsible anymore. Are we, are we together on this? What's your responsibility? Your responsibility is to go and seek reconciliation. And if they say no, you're good. 
You're good. And I would say pray for them. Pray that God shows them they're wrong. And maybe try again in a year. Am I saying this is easy? No. Because some of us have been deeply hurt. But listen, if you, First John, guys, if, if you say you love God, whom you can't see, yet you don't love your brother who you can see, do we really love God? And I know it's hard. I'm not saying that this is even possible without the help of the Holy Spirit. And I don't think Jesus is saying that either. He's not saying, go in your own strength, a.k.a. the flesh, and reconcile to everyone you have grievances with. He's not saying that. And we're called to do what only God can do through us. That's Christianity. Christianity is, you can't do it. Didn't Jesus say that in John 15? You can do nothing without me. And so what, what, do, what, what do we do? Well, you pray and you ask for power that you've never known before. And the power is not going to manifest itself in weird ways in a church service like you do in laps. It's going to manifest itself by you having the power to go and talk to whoever you have issues with. That's power. Power to see sin get crushed and broken and walls from a result of sin get crushed and broken down, sledgehammered. That's power. Not breakdancing in the middle of a service. Real power. That God might come upon you by His Spirit and enable you to do what Jesus is commanding you to do as a Christian. He's not asking you to do it on your own strength. And if you're not a Christian... Listen, guys, you don't have his strength. This is impossible for you. But by the strength of God the Spirit, you can do this. Two main things are in this illustration. One, your faith family, your brother. And then secondly, the second illustration is just the larger human family that you're inevitably going to bump into. So look at... Verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. So now someone's taking you to court. Uh Uh-oh, what'd you do? You did something. And now you're headed to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never Get out till you have paid the last penny. What's he saying here? It's another illustration of the anger and the verbal abuse. He's saying, you've wronged someone. You have a problem with someone. And now they're going to act on you and take you to court. And Jesus is saying, if you can settle it out of court with them, that means you're going to them before the court situation, before it gets to legal tension, You go to them before that, and you try to reconcile. Now listen, what did we just say? As much as it depends on you, as much as it is in your power, you reconcile with them. Because once it goes to human authorities, well, God has instituted the human authorities, like we said earlier. And if they put you in prison till you can pay, you're going to pay the last penny. It's an illustration. And so he's saying deal with relationships in the world, business relationships, 
insurance, you know. Now, in, in a world where we live, it, it is almost impossible to live this out. It really is. But if it's possible, you go for it. You go for it. You try to work it out outside of the court. Now, what about, what about this and where we're at tonight? So, like, if, if I left you right here, and if I'm left right here, we're in big trouble, aren't we? Like, we're, we're in trouble. So, what I want to give you in these last moments is this. I want you to see that there's a way in which you can do this. You can deal with your anger. You can process it properly. And there's a way that you can begin by the Spirit's power to work on your words that flow from the heart. There's a way that you can go in God's power and seek to be reconciled with those to whom you're estranged. Well, how? Well, here's how. Jesus Christ, the very one giving the sermon, rather than letting just anger, the Bible calls it the wrath of God, fall upon you and I, you know what he does? He says, I'll take it. And you know the story. Jesus was unjustly beaten, mobbed, lynched. He absorbed the anger of men. And on the cross, he absorbed the anger of God towards your sin and mine. You remember in Matthew 26, when Jesus is being arrested, I find this astounding. Jesus is being arrested, right? He's in the garden in Gethsemane. He's praying. He's sweating blood because he doesn't want to go under God's wrath. And, and he gets up and look, and here comes a mob after him with torches and pitchforks and what you would expect when you see a mob, soldiers and religious elites and And Peter pulls out the sword, you remember? And he takes, a, he takes a swing and he cuts off the high priest's servant's ear. Malchus, I believe his name was. Now we know that Peter was not that good with a sword. Like to surgically take someone's ear off. He was trying to kill the dude. And the guy moved just in the nick of time. And he caught his ear. And Jesus picks up the ear, puts it back on the guy's head, and says, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And then he says this, verse 53, do you not think that I can appeal to my father, and he will not at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Do you know how many a, a Roman legion is at this time? 6,000 times 12, 72,000 angels. Jesus says, you guys realize that, boom, 72,000 angels could be on this right now. And yet, I refrain. You talk about power to unleash anger and wrath and hellfire. Rather, he says, I'll take it. I'll absorb it instead. 
I could, and listen, it wouldn't be unjust anger. It would be just and righteous anger. It would not be the wrong sinful kind. It would be okay for him to do that. Now, what can you do, listen to this, what can you do against a bodily, a body, a bodiless person, which is what an angel is? A powerful being without a body, you can't do anything. There's mass wreckage at his command. And instead, he, listen, he's treated like the garbage in Gehenna. Do you realize that? He's taken out of Jerusalem like the trash is, and he's taken where the thieves and the criminals are. And he receives our hell of fire on the cross. Jesus stepped into your hell of fire and my hell of fire and said, I'll take it. So that you can be the object of his forgiveness, not his anger, not his just wrath, not his justice. So he takes our place in grace so that we then might be able to be merciful and gracious to others. That's the answer. See, the answer is the more you dwell on what Jesus and God has done for you and what Jesus in the, in God in the person of Jesus has done in your place, how could I not go and try to seek reconciliation with another human being who is just like me, even if they're murderers? Because if you're angry and you're throwing words around in anger, the same moral weight is on you. You're the same. So what you're not allowed to do anymore is put yourself higher than other people. And that's what you do. That's how you're able to look down on them and say, I will not reconcile or forgive you because you see yourself as better than them. And what Jesus is calling you to in this moment, he's saying, look, I took it for you. I took your hell of fire. I went outside into the, the burning trash heap and was burned there for you so that you can then go to others and seek reconciliation. And I'm not going to ask you for more that, than you can handle. I'm not going to ask you for more than what you're able to do without my strength. I'll, I'll be with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Do we believe him in that? So here's what I want you to picture. In your mind, I want you to picture Jesus doing this for you, because he did. And I want you to picture when you go to reconcile, I want you to picture Jesus right there with you. Because he said he would be, by his spirit. You're not by yourself. He's not sending you out, go. You know that go, be reconciled? He's not saying go by yourself. He's saying go. And I'll go with you. Go and I'll go with you. He's with you by his spirit. And lastly, about that anger. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is nine. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And you see, the more that you tap in, now listen to me, the more that you tap into the power of the Holy Spirit, the more you're under His influence, the more you're under His control, the more 
you will not be angry. So in Galatians 5, we see the contrast of the flesh, outbursts of anger, versus being under control of the Holy Spirit, which will look like loving people, being peaceful, being joyful, being patient with people, not angry with people, being kind to people, not rude and obnoxious towards people. You're faithful to people. You're not like, forget you. You see, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that will enable you to do this. And listen, so when anger shows up, what do we do? We no longer say, it's okay, and justify it. Because that's what you've been doing from here till now. From now on, when anger shows up, recognize it for what it is. It's sin, and it's the root of murder. And see it like that. And beg God for transformation and help. Listen, he has promised, guys, listen to me, he has promised, if you're a Christian, to conform you to the image of Christ. Romans 8, 29. You are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. He's going to get you there. So we're not talking about will he get you there. He'll get you there. We're talking about the how in the now. The how in the now. You recognize it, acknowledge the guilt and the weight of what it is, and then you, at that moment, ask for forgiveness, and then you go and ask for forgiveness for the person that you're letting it out on. Remembering that when God let his anger out, it didn't come on you, it came on Jesus. Amen? So let's practice that. And listen, as we practice it, I'm not saying you're going to be awesome tomorrow, but maybe in 20 years of practicing that, Maybe in 20 years of absorbing other people's anger at you like Jesus absorbed yours, maybe, maybe you will respond in love. Maybe you will respond with patience. Maybe you will respond with joy and forgiveness. Maybe the Holy Spirit will show up and enable you to go reconcile with A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And you can know that as you're on your way going, he's going with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you.